0: Hebrews 13:18 and 19 Pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner Now these two verses contain most of the information we have about the author of this letter to the Hebrews. They don't tell us his name, nor do they answer the many questions that we would like to ask him, whoever he was. But two things are fairly clear. First, he was once a part of them We know this because he desires not to visit them for the first time, but he wants to be restored to them. In other words, they knew each other. Whether his time with them previously was long or short, whether he lived among them or had just visited a time or two, all that isn't told us, but it's clear that they had together a personal history. Secondly, we learned that he was likely an apostle or apostolic representative or elder to them. Of course, we know that he was given God's inspired word for these people. We we have this book, but his personal knowledge of the specific threats facing this people seems to show that he was one of the leaders mentioned in verse 17. Notice he asks not for personal prayer in verse 18, but prayers for us and we. Well, who are the us? In context, it would most naturally be the leaders he has just talked about in the previous verse. They are the ones who watch over souls and give account. Now in verse 18, he says he and others desire prayer, and are confident they have a good conscience, having acted with integrity. So he's probably one of these church leaders. Now, this pastor was away from his sheep for some time. Whether this was because of a mission trip, an evangelistic ministry, whether he was visiting other congregations, Whether he had been driven away by persecution, perhaps he'd even been imprisoned, we don't know. But he has been away long enough that he wants this separation to end soon. (laughs) And his great desire, even need, is for his beloved friends to pray for him that they might be restored to one another. So let's look at these very simple verses under four headings. First, there is a request for prayer. A request for prayer. This request is actually given in the form of a command. Literally, he orders them, keep on praying for us. Now they had been obeying the Christian duty to beg grace from God for their leaders. They'd already been doing that. But he requires them to continue doing that. Just as in verse 17, he urged them to keep obeying their leaders, now he requests, he orders really, that they keep on praying for them. Now there are many obvious lessons here. Let me give you four. First, prayer is a duty. Prayer is a duty. Yes, prayer is a privilege. But prayer is also a duty, and it's not beneath Christians to think or act on that basis. We may even request it of one another, as this man has done, but even more so, we can actually charge one another, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, pray for us, pray for them, do it. That's what he's doing here. If God commands us to do it for each other, and we're all convinced of that about prayer, then we may require it of each other. We may say, pray for me. Just as Paul could say, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel, we may declare, woe is me if you cease praying for me or I cease praying for you. We are new covenant priests. We should certainly believe that after going through this book. And so we should be making intercession for one another. We now have the way clear to God through Jesus Christ. So let us perform this eminently useful duty. So that's the first thing. Prayer is a duty. Secondly, prayer should be made for all church leaders. Notice he commands prayer for us, not me alone. Prayer is not a work to be done only for your favorite persons. It should be done for everyone, especially in this context, in church office. So pray for your pastor and pray for your deacons. Just as pastors have a special duty to pray for each of their flock, and I do attempt to do that You should be praying for your leaders, for your shepherds, for your servants. Our mutual love and commitment to one another as a covenant body under Christ should lead us to pray for one another. So prayer is a duty. Prayer should be made for all church leaders. Thirdly, prayer must be without ceasing. The preacher was not asking for a one-time prayer. I'm sure he was willing to receive a one-time prayer, but that's not what he's ordering or asking for here. They had clearly prayed for him in the past. The verb tense tells us that, but he's not content with it being enough. No, he desired their continued regular intercessions. How do we show God that we really want what we're asking for. Oh, by asking once. You all know that's the wrong answer, right? If, our, if a child comes to us and say, says, I want a drink, and you say, oh not right now, uh, wait just a little bit longer, and they don't come back, you can reasonably infer it, it wasn't that pressing, it wasn't that important to them. No, we show God that we really want what we're asking for by imitating the persistent widow. She kept coming to that unjust judge and wouldn't stop asking for justice until he gave it to her. Jesus said the lesson of that story was this, that we ought always to pray and not lose heart, not give up, keep praying. So let us incessantly beat on the door of heaven until we are answered. Our father is surely more ready to answer us than any human judge, especially a wicked one. So let us love one another with continued prayers. A fourth use from this first simple point is all we need is gotten from God alone. These elders needed help to perform the duties found in verse 17. The people couldn't supply that help any more than the leaders could do it by themselves. But there was a supply of grace in God through Jesus Christ. And it was there for the asking. Prayer is a statement of humility about our poor resources. Prayer displays our neediness. But prayer also is a statement of the sufficiency of God. That's why we go to him. Because he can supply our every need. So leaders shouldn't act as if they don't need anything from their people or from God. At a minimum, they need the people's prayers. And also see that prayer is a practical way to declare your belief in the sovereignty of God and the frailty of man. Do you believe those things? Then pray, pray. Our second point in this set of verses is there's a motive for prayer here. First, there's a duty, there's also a motive. This is found in the second half of verse 18. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. This man asks this congregation to pray for these men for a reason. This was because, there there was a because, in other words, to this commandment to pray. Notice it says, pray for us for, pray for us because. And the for is because these leaders had a clear conscience. Their elders had this. In regard to their duties and their people. He could say that all of them desired to act in an honorable way in all things to the church. Now the conscience is the human faculty that makes judgments. It's a result of being made in the image of God. We reflect God when we morally judge ourselves and others and events around us. As Romans 2 clearly says, all men have consciences that accuse them or excuse their actions. Human beings are judging beings. And judging's not a bad word. It's intrinsic to our very natures. Conscience is a moral compass that guides us, and it's in every human being. Now, admittedly, since the fall, our consciences are fallible, even sinful. They can be right or wrong in their judgments. This is why in the scripture, while it commands and requires judgments from us often, it also repeatedly warns us to be very careful in our conclusions or decisions. Our consciences reason according to the moral code that each of us has accepted. And every human being, Christian or not, has a moral code. That code may be pleasing to God, or it may be horrifically evil. But human beings, as image bearers, are intrinsically moral beings and they all have a conscience and they all make judgments. This is one of the reasons that you and your children should memorize the Ten Commandments and the two greatest commandments as summarized by Jesus Christ. In that way, your conscience will be gunned to be steered with right moral material. It will have the right kind of moral compass to work with when it starts to make judgments. That's why you should read the scriptures in part to learn how consciences should judge in a righteous way. You see, even after regeneration, Christians don't have perfect consciences. Our motives and thinking are mixed, And they're not going to be perfected until we reach uh, the, the presence of Jesus Christ. This means that we can actually have a clear conscience when we shouldn't. And it means we can have a troubled conscience when we should be at peace. This is why the word of God must ultimately rule us and not even our hearts, not even our consciences. The word of God, in its perfection, in its morality, in its wisdom, must rule us. This is why we also come to Christ to be cleansed regularly, privately and publicly. Because even when we think we've sinned, Maybe we didn't. And there are many sins we didn't even know we committed, and yet we did. And we need Christ's help and his forgiveness for all of that. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.4 4 could say, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Right? I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. In this situation, Paul saw nothing in himself to accuse himself. His conscience was clear. But he also knew that he wasn't the all seeing, all knowing, perfect judge. The Lord is. Paul had a clear conscience, but he's not claiming perfection. He had a clear conscience. But he's not claiming perfection. And that brings us back to our verse. The reason for this request for prayer is not that the leaders know themselves to be perfect in every thought and deed. They do have a clear conscience. They know their motives are right toward the people of God. And so they ask for prayer. They know they can ask for prayer. They are saying to their flock... We only want to do you good. We aren't double-minded in this. We want to lead you in ways that are good for your soul. So pray for us. Ask God to make our good intentions come to fulfillment in you, despite our own weakness, despite our own remaining sin. And I hope the use from this point is rather obvious. First of all, pray for your four officers because I am convinced that our motives toward all of you are honorable. Our consciences toward you are truly clear. We only want you to prosper in Christ. We do not care about ourselves in that, in that sense. We aren't claiming to be without sin, or to have all knowledge, or to possess the best gifts. But we honestly claim to only desire your spiritual good. So, keep on praying that God would, despite our frailty, give us our great desire that you might be mature in Christ and a glory to God. The third point in the text is found in the beginning of verse 19. That is the urgency for prayer. Verse 19 begins by emphasizing the necessity of praying for these things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this. This isn't one of those perfunctory, uh, pray for me if you think about it. Pray for me once. I don't really care if you do. No, this is the opposite of that. This is a man convinced that he must have his people's prayers. He is begging them, I urge you the more earnestly to do this. This is a man who feels his need. And so he presses them to seriously, thoughtfully, and intensely pray. Now think about that. If one inspired author of the Bible felt that need, why don't we? Are we really that self-sufficient? Do we really not have spiritual needs? How is it that we can go through an entire day and not pray? Why isn't prayer for the needs of others more important to us? There might be many reasons. Perhaps it's because we have so many material things that we're lulled to sleep about the many spiritual needs that are all around us. Perhaps we simply don't love others enough to spend the time to intercede for them. Perhaps, well, you know, they don't really deserve it. I mean, their sins and weaknesses are kind of repellent. I'm not gonna pray for them. Instead of disdaining them, brothers and sisters, pray down the grace of God upon them. Many reasons might be given, but if you don't regularly keep on praying for your officers and the believers around you, I ask you to search your heart under the eye of God. Ask him to change you so that you might fulfill this command and example. And so do your brethren good and glorify God. Well, fourth, note the benefit of prayer. We see this in the last half of verse 19. There are specific benefits to prayer. He says that I may be restored to you the sooner. Prayer is the God-ordained means to get God to act. This preacher desired something good and holy to be back with the people of God sooner instead of later. Now, that may seem to us like a small thing in one sense, but it obviously wasn't to him. Because of love for them, it was a genuine and good desire, and so he asked prayer for it. Why prayer? Why prayer? Well, not so that their hearts would be comforted only, although prayer does that, Not so that they could leave the outcome of these things to God in submission to the sovereign Lord, although prayer does that. But so that God would work and bring him back to his loved ones sooner. Prayer is how believers obtain blessings from God. It's why it's one of the primary means of grace. It's one of the main things you ought to be doing as a Christian. And why is it so constantly, and why it is so constantly pressed upon the people of God in Scripture? Why is it that we as a church don't have more good from God? Well, in part, it may be as simple as, we don't ask. Isn't that what James says the problem is, at least sometimes? We don't have because we don't ask. Brethren, in this verse, do you see the incredible condescension of God? What this man desires, I, I suppose in one sense, just isn't very important. Instead of getting back to his people later, he wants to get there sooner. And yet he knows that God cares enough that if they will earnestly pray, it is likely that he'll get this good desire. So we should pray, because truly good things will come to us, holy things that we need, and profitable things that we desire. So let us pray, in part, because of the many benefits that come to us when we do. Now I have two closing short uses. First, we learn here that prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. That should be abundantly clear from verse 19. The author expected for things to change if they prayed. Oh, but pastor, don't you know that God's decree is unchangeable and prayer can't ultimately change anything? Well, I, I know that God's decree is unalterable. And prayer doesn't change that decree, yes I know that. But I also know that God in that decree has ordained prayer to be a means whereby He gives good gifts to His children. <laughs> so from God's perspective, yes, nothing's changed. But from our perspective, these things that were always ordained, we d- we don't know what it is that's, that's ordained. All we know is that things were going along in a certain direction and we prayed and God answered that prayer and things changed. We don't stop praying because God is sovereign. We start and keep on praying because God is sovereign. Only that kind of God can actually answer prayers and change history. No Christians ever sincerely prayed to an impotent God. What would the point be of that? Regardless of what your theology is, when you're on your knees, you're admitting there's a sovereign God. Well, second and finally, please pray for your imperfect pastor and deacon. Do they lack in gift and grace? Yes. Are they weak in body and soul? Yes. Do they fight sin and discouragement just like you? Yes. Well, don't despise them. Pray for them. Even when you disagree with them, (laughs) do you believe that those four men intend you good? Then keep on earnestly and urgently praying for them let's pray